I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. I really take that seriously. But I also want to account with inquisitiveness, not an inquisitional posture, those of other faith traditions and really learn from them, value them, dialogue as friends, not as object lessons, but as my, as my true friends. Welcome to this week's episode of What the Faith. On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, who's the founder and director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement called New Wine, New Wineskins, and professor of Christian Theology and Theology of Culture at Multnomah University and Seminary. He's also the author of Beatitudes, Not Platitudes, Jesus' Invitation to the Good Life, Evangelical Zen, A Christian Spiritual Travels with a Buddhist Friend, and my personal favorite and all-time favorite book, Connecting Christ, How to Discuss Jesus in a World of Diverse Paths. It's really an honor to have Paul on the podcast. He's played such a pivotal role in my own faith journey. So to connect with him this past year and build a relationship with him through What the Faith has been a dream come true. We hope you enjoy Paul's genius as much as we did. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the What the Faith podcast. We start off every episode asking our guests the same question, which is, what's your background in faith? What was faith like for you in your childhood? And how did that kind of lead to what you're doing now? Well, thanks it's so much. It's so great to be with you, friends, and I've uh, really appreciated the opportunity to connect with both of you in the recent past. I'm looking forward to further opportunities to connect. So I was raised in a strong Christian home. My parents both have passed away. I'm at least a few years older than you both. And so uh, my mom passed away earlier this year. My dad passed away uh, several years earlier. And so they were, you know, up there, so to speak. But they were very godly, very simple Christians, um, but real precious faith. And their lives really made an impact on me and continue to make an impact on me. As one of my mentors, Dr. John M. Perkins, said of himself that he had a debt of gratitude for God's mercy and personal grace in his life. And I feel a debt of gratitude to my parents as they reflected God's goodness and grace toward me, someone who really didn't deserve it. Because I was raised in a certain context, a Christian context, which I've come to appreciate greatly. But as within many Christian church contexts, there's going to be a bunch of churchianity, not just the church. And and I, I really started rebelling in my high school years. I really had a lot of questions. I was searching. I had a pastor later in, you know, in my young adult years where he said, for you, Paul, there's either fifth gear or reverse. Uh, you don't really have a third gear or neutral type of thing. And, and I was really struggling through these questions with churchianity and disillusioned with at times, you know, and I've been guilty of this, no doubt myself, saying one thing and doing another. But I, I really struggle with that kind of conflicted spirituality. And so I really rebelled in my later high school years uh, toward the faith and really found solace in uh, somehow I got into Jim Morrison and the Doors. You know, I've always loved musicians generally after their prime. And he was 10 years or so dead. I'm still holding out hope, holding out hope that he's alive. Okay. <laughs> I'm one of those. Uh, but same thing with Kurt Cobain. You know, I didn't get into his music until many years later. And now I really love Nirvana. But with Morrison, you know, that was what, when did he die? 70 one or so or 72. And I was getting into him in 81 or 82. And, you know, break on through to the other side, five and one, one and five, no one here gets out alive, you know, roadhouse blues. I woke up this morning, got myself a beer. The end is, you know, the future's uncertain. The end is always near a letter roll. But, you know, I got into Nietzsche through him, his philosophical thought forms. He was a pagan. And it really shaped my thinking in so many ways. I mean, he really was a pagan in his, in his thing. I don't mean pagan like not sanctified. I mean, he really got into pagan thought forms. 
And that shaped me. And I, I'm not joking when I say this. I think even when I came back to a more vital Christian faith, and you know, I'm broken too. So it's like when I saw the issues in my own church context, and those were real issues, I still have some of that in myself, that brokenness and conflictedness, and I want to grow. I, I um, entered more fully into a vital, what I call a vital Christian faith. I wouldn't denounce what I went through. I think it's instrumental. I think Morrison was instrumental in me being a theologian. Uh, and so I think even my theology is, is in some respects shaped by my exposure to the doors, to Nietzsche, and certainly Dylan and Cobain are key forces there, as well as Keith Richards. I love music and I love certain kinds of music and uh, I love all kinds. <laughs> but uh, besides the influences theologically of Karl Barth and Colin Gunton and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I suppose James Cone and others, Martin Luther. John Steinbeck is one of my favorites. So those are all forces that shape me in some way from Grapes of Wrath to Mice and Men to East of Eden and beyond in my theological work, even what I do now. I hope that answers somewhat. Yeah, for sure. And maybe you can elaborate a bit on, you know, so for you kind of coming back to faith or kind of coming into your own terms of what faith looks like for you came through a pagan. Maybe not just pagan, not just pagan, but um, I think even my work amongst Buddhists has been really yeah. helpful to me as an evangelical Christian. I'm a I'm an Orthodox Christian, what you'd call an Orthodox Christian in terms of my beliefs. I'm not into syncretism. You know, I'm just using language that just to make clear where I'm coming from. But yeah. that doesn't mean I don't cherish and respect and value these conversation partners who've been key to my growth and development. Zen Buddhism has been a, in dialogue with my Zen friends. Zen Buddhist friends has been key and, and other traditions as well. Yeah, so maybe you can elaborate a bit on that of how, you know, having relationships with people of other faiths has kind of helped you, you know, how do you navigate that as a Christian? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm always fascinated by Paul's encounter on Mars Hill. It just so flies in the face of what I think a lot of people think of Paul. And I think this wasn't a one-off for him. I think it was how he was wired. Thinking of Acts 17, where he's a good God-fearing Jew. He's not into idols. He grieves over the idols because that would be what he would receive from the Torah, you know, have no idols. But there he is in Mars Hill, Athens, sees these idols, he's greed, but then he uses an idol, statue to the unknown God, to engage literally these pagan philosophers um, in the best sense. You know, they were pagan philosophers. The pantheon of the gods uh, was certainly front and center for them. And yet he draws from their own poetry and a hymn to Zeus, constructively, positively. And a lot of Christians in my circles can't make sense of that. But for Paul, all truth is God's truth. And if it comes from God in Christ, he has no trouble seeing it elsewhere. It's always the filter through Christ for him and is revealed in scripture. But he engages what I call, and I get into this in the book, Connecting Christ a bit, but uh, he's always critical in his thought, but charitable in spirit. And he's constructive and creative in his engagement. And I try and live into that to be critical in thought, not spirit, to be charitable in spirit, and to be constructive and creative engagement. That's what I see with him on Mars Hill, where he draws from pagan thought forms, even as he's bearing witness to Christ. So I think that as Leslie Newbigin, if you're familiar with, I'm talking to your your viewers and such, if they're familiar with the great Leslie Newbigin, the missional theologian who was a missionary to India, came back to England in the middle part of the 20th century, later part, and England had gone through a cultural transformation where pluralism was front and center. And he, he would say to the Christian community, it's a, it's a diabolical thing when we can't see the good in the other. If we're always having to look for the Achilles heel, there's something wrong with that kind of Christian faith. And so it was the Harvard professor, Crystal Stendahl, who said when he was in Sweden for an event, 
I think for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I don't think he was a Latter-day Saint. I think he was a mainline Protestant, most likely. But he said, we should have a sense of holy envy for other traditions. And I, I would like to have holy envy that I can see something in another tradition while even seeking to really affirm my tradition and say, I appreciate that. I value that. I, I cherish that. And I really believe that it is or may be found in my own tradition, but I can learn from others. I can draw from others. I can respect others. And that doesn't mean I have to disrespect my faith. And I think for a lot of people, my struggles to respect another tradition means disrespect for one's own faith. And I'm I'm not a pluralist I, in the sense of, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. I really take that seriously. But I also want to account with inquisitiveness, not an inquisitional posture, those of other faith traditions and really learn from them, value them, dialogue as friends, not as object lessons, but as my as my true friends. And was privileged to write a book with a Zen Buddhist priest called Evangelical Zen, a Christian spiritual travels with a Buddhist friend. And um, he passed away shortly after the book was finished, Abbott Kilgan Carlson. It's one of the most life-changing relationships I've ever had. Mm. That, that is really powerful that you two were able to write that book that close to his passing. I think I think that term holy envy has got to be one of my new favorite terms. Because envious is almost, you know, in some ways it's it doesn't always make you feel good, but it's like we all I don't do. Know. <laughs> <laughs> we all do it. Yeah. Let's um, make it holy envy. If we're gonna do it, let's do it holy. <laughs> yeah, there's holy types of holy in the way that we envy. Yeah. We holy envy their holiness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious for you, because I really like the point that you brought up of Nietzsche being a impact on the way you kind of view uh, spirituality and uh, your theology is how philosophy has really kind of played into your own spirituality and also how you relate and are able to relate to others uh, with their spirituality. Yes. Yeah, so you want me to speak on Nietzsche? Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I just was referencing Nietzsche the other day in the theology class because, I mean, sometimes our worst enemies are our best friends. I mean, and, and Nietzsche meant no positives toward historic Orthodox Christianity. Um, he, he, he thought of Christianity the way it came through the tradition of the Peter and Paul that we've received as slave religion, because it lifts up the despicable and the despised and brings down the cultured. And, and he has this incredible reflection on 1 Corinthians 1, where he just hammers Christianity. And I love him for it. Because, as I said, sometimes our worst enemies, those who mean no good toward the Christian faith are our best friends, because they tell us the way they see it, and they tell us the way it is. And Nietzsche understood and rejected what we Christians so often accept but don't understand. And what he does there in his critique of 1 Corinthians 1 is he says, anything that is despised, anything that's crucified, so to speak, that is lifted up, that is celebrated, that is worshipped and adored. It's my wording, but it's what he's, he's saying. Because 1 Corinthians 1 says, the foolishness of the world, namely the cross, the weakness of the world, what the world sees as weak, what the world sees as foolish, that is what God esteems. God, to what the world is foolishness and weakness, to God is power and wisdom, namely the cross of Christ. And these Corinthian Christians were all about the super apostles. They were all about getting ahead, being the brightest and best. And Paul says, not many of you are great by the world standards. Um, you need to go downwardly mobile, quit trying to be upwardly mobile. God and Christ went downwardly mobile. Don't be about the Superman. Don't be about Nietzsche. Nietzsche rejects it as he's about the lone individual in isolation, Zarathustra. As he says in the book, Zarathustra, where he says, God is dead. We have killed him. 
And the people went about their businesses if nothing had happened. But Nietzsche's prophet Zarathustra is contrasted, and and Dionysius, as he understands Dionysius, is as Karl Barth said, is contrasted with the crucified God, who is our neighbor, which is what God is in Jesus Christ. God is our neighbor, where He lays down His life for others, not to lift Himself up over against others. And for Nietzsche, the best way to help someone is to let them help themselves. Uh, each person must lift themselves up to move toward the superhuman. But Christianity defies that. And he said in the same critique of 1 Corinthians 1, which he nails what Paul's getting at, most Christians aren't even thinking about 1 Corinthians 1. They don't see it. A student of mine said just today as we were discussing that, said, all my years, I know 1 Corinthians 1, but I've never thought about this. And that's, I don't think we're allowed to think about it because so often we want the power and the glory. We want the power and glory of like networking with people who are going to raise up our status in the world. It just shows how insecure we are. If I'm not so insecure, I don't have to somehow try and get ahead at the expense of others or by way of networking others because I'm secure in God and Christ. It's a very different framework than what Nietzsche is after, but Paul is focusing that, developing that, framing that, articulating. And I'm thankful for Nietzsche because he understands what we believe. He understands and rejects it. As I said earlier, we often accept it, but don't understand it. As my students said just today, I've never even thought in these terms what Paul is saying, even though I know 1 Corinthians 1. And Paul's quoting Jeremiah 9, let not the wise person boast about their wisdom or the strong person boast about their strength or the, what was it, strong person or the rich person or the wise person boast about their wisdom. But let them boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And that's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 1 is he quotes from that, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. But the Corinthians were boasting in all kinds of sophistication and getting ahead with those who are the movers and the shakers. And Paul says, take a nosedive, go downward mobile, downwardly mobile with the God who is neighbor, lays down his life for others. And that's what Nietzsche rejects. But he said, it's not that Christianity, contrary to the historiography, took on and destroyed Rome at its weakest point. But when Rome was at its highest point, Nietzsche says, when it was most sophisticated, when it was most cultured, when it was most celebrated, Christianity was the greatest disease, the greatest sickness, the greatest harm done to civilization, he says. And I say, bring it on. I'll be your huckleberry. So I, I like that kind of line. And because he, it's like, it's a great aftershave early in the morning for any Christian. Wake up. Nietzsche's got you, man. I love him. Yeah, I love that point you make too about, because you do this in Connecting Christ as well, where you also like leave space in your book for you know, your friends of these other faiths to kind of write their response to your chapter. And that really kind of blew me away because I'd never really seen that necessarily in a, a Christian book where you're allowing space for these other followers to kind of have their rebuttal or their response of why and their within their context and their perspective of their faith, why they see aspects of Christianity to, let's say, be wrong or not correct. For you, how does that, you know, because I think that that's one of the best or like the benefits of having friendships and relationships with people of other faith is to have, I don't know, maybe more grounded view of your faith. <laughs> um, how would you, I don't know, I, I think it's a hard balance for a lot of followers of any faith, but especially Christians to walk of, you know, still believing that your faith is the truth and not really, you know, kind of rejecting the interfaith dialogue necessarily, that it's only about acknowledging the similarities how do you kind of balance that where you're able to embrace differences, like you kind of just mentioned, and embrace it so that, you know, you can grow in your faith and you also still have a good relationship with people? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so what I'll do is first discuss what was going on 
in the book there with giving space for them to share their perspectives. Then I'll come to this other matter about, you know, interfaith, multi-faith. How do you show respect when, you know, it's not just trying to find the similarities, right? I think there were two aspects that you were after. So yeah, I would have given them more space. The publisher said I only had so much space to give them to give a response. I mean, and I get that because the more pages, the cost goes up of a book. So that's not a criticism. I'm just saying if I had had an opportunity, I would have given them that. I mean, it was supposed to be, and it was, a different kind of apologetic book. I was asked to do an apologetic book for the Christian faith from the vantage point of how I see things and how I would engage our multi-faith world. And I thought, well, this is going to be a different kind of apologetic because I really want it to be dialogical, uh, not monological. I want to be dialogical. And so it was interesting, though, that the not everyone were people I knew in advance. Some of them were. And I would say generally, and I won't say which of the ones I knew before and which of the ones I didn't, but those who I knew already, though some of us, we had gone through some hard times of intense, hard, harsh connection. It wasn't always easy. A lot of trauma toward historic Orthodox Christian faith, which I represent. So when people see me, all kinds of things can come out, triggers and the like. And uh, so sometimes that happens. And But we build trust through the challenging differences and the like. It wasn't simply tolerance. Hopefully it was tenacious love. Tolerance has its place, but in Portland, everything is about tolerance, which can mean, tolerance is good if it means let's not kill one another where our beliefs on religion and such, but tolerance only goes so far. Tolerance can easily mask as indifference. And I think we have to be about, not against tolerance, but more than tolerance, tenacious love, even with those we vitally disagree and fervently disagree. But those who I had friendships with, even in the midst of strong differences, there were more immediate, better connections with even the response dynamic. You wouldn't notice it from the final product. I'm just saying what went on behind the scenes. Because it's true, if we invest time and energy in building relationships and building trust, that can provide cushion, not to minimize the differences, but to create space with our lives to be heard and to hear them. And so I found that that's often happening. And I think the more secure we are, the, the and I'm not saying I'm very secure, but the more secure we are, the more we don't have to dominate the conversation. You know, I'm not in control of whether someone comes to faith in Christ. I long for everyone to, but I'm not in control of that. And so I don't need to try and be in control of it. I just want to have a conversation and let it go where it goes. And it's not bait and switch. If someone never believes, I still want to be their friend because they're my friend. Um, it's not a utilitarian means to an end approach to be a friend so they convert. That's bad in my estimation. That's not relational. Um, that's used car salesmanship. So then the other item that you asked about, Allison, was how can I show respect for them in the midst of the strong differences? And the, my friend, the Zen Buddhist priest, Abbot Kilian Carlson, he and I met in 2003. We were part of a, a conversation in Portland. If I could just and you'll see how this relates. Can I just develop this for a second? There had been a, you know, Portland's had its fair share of fatal shootings, you know, at times involving police and African-Americans. And back around that time, there was a fatal shooting of an African-American woman named Kendra James. And there was a major outcry in the African-American community and beyond. She was killed by a white police officer. And so there was a national organization. There was a grant where this organization came in to try and build understanding and trust between people of different faiths. And with the police and with the police union, people with diverse ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds. And our moderator, who was very thoughtful and very astute, though still was about interfaith engagement, which it all depends on what one means by interfaith, multi-faith. I emphasize multi-faith going through our differences, 
not around them, as often we see in interfaith, and not stopping short as many fundamentalists, unless you convert to my position, we don't have a conversation. I think both are problematic. I think we should go through our convictions, not minimize the differences, account for them, honor those differences, and still look for common ground through the differences where there might be common ground. And, and this Zen Buddhist priest, whose thinking process were very different from mine, and I didn't agree with the moderator. Why should we leave our convictions at the door to find common ground? Then we're not at the we're not in the conversation. Someone else is in the conversation. So we thought, no, we want to bring ourselves fully into this, not to impose, but to really announce ourselves. You know, to be truly who we are in our fullness, and to affirm others in their fullness in the public square. And with that, that started the conversation. He invited me to come in 2005, right after the political season. We're about to have, you know, perhaps another tense moment beyond tenseness, depending on no matter how the vote goes down with the U.S. presidency. But after President Bush won re-election and certain other ballot measures in Portland went the opposite way of what more liberal Portlanders wanted nationally and statewide, uh, there were a lot of people upset with evangelical Christians because we were seen as helping President Bush get reelected. And, and regardless of my own political views, that wasn't even the point of the conversation. He said, can you come and share with my Zen Buddhist community over a potluck? And we continue those potlucks to this day. That was 2005. Share with them how you see compassion biblically and from your tradition. And uh, so we did. I brought some of my students with me at New Wine, New Wineskins, the institute I direct here in Portland, associated with Multnomah University and Seminary. And I brought some of my students and his Buddhist parishioners, and we had a potluck. We found out we both like noodle salad. As Sally Tisdale, a leading Buddhist practitioner and who's a, a Harper and Row noted author in Portland, she wrote an article for Tricycle Magazine called The Beloved Community. She wrote in there that both sides were surprised. What? You like noodle salad? We like noodle salad. Wow. We actually have something in common. And we found out that, hey, these Buddhists are actually funnier than we thought, she wrote. And the Buddhists found that these evangelicals were smarter than they thought. So we were learning something about one another. But we've never minimized the differences. He wasn't asking me to minimize. He just said, tell us what compassion looks like from your Christian vantage point. And at the end, a former Christian Zen Buddhist practitioner said to me after I shared my stories from Jesus, the story of the Samaritan of Extraordinary Mercy in Luke 10, and on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and John M. Perkins, their stories of compassion. One of the Buddhists said to me, if anyone has a corner on compassion, it should be you Christians, you evangelicals with your belief that God came down with he from heaven to identify with us in our brokenness. What happened? So he was asking me and asking us not to minimize our tradition, but to maximize it, to bring it fully to bear on how we engage. And I like that. And so that said, we started these dialogues and these potlucks where we brought our differences to bear and said, can the relationship that we're building, the trust, sustain? Can our practices sustain strong difference in the midst of trauma? Because there are a lot of triggers, especially amongst the Buddhists, many of them former Christians based on all kinds of things in their life, what led them away from Christianity. They would see us, they would see me, and they would have triggers. And they had to practice their own tradition to help them, and with him as a mentor and his wife as a mentor, co-abbots, to help them process that trauma. And it was a powerful thing to see how they drew from their tradition as Zen practitioners on how to engage in multi-faith discourse. And Kilgan Carlson said to my World Religions class one year, he said, I feel bad for anyone who doesn't think their faith tradition is the best. I think in Portland, we often have to think, well, my tradition's okay, but it's not good because we want to be tolerant. I think, I, I really feel bad for someone who has to think that they hold to something they don't think is really priceless and precious. I think we should hold to what we hold to with full passion and because we think it is so beautiful. And he, he wanted me to really see the beauty and profundity of Zen Buddhism. And I'm sure he would like me to, though he doesn't proselytize. 
like would have liked me to convert, if you will. He was going to force that. He was going to push that. Um, nor would I push that on him. But we're always, in a sense, witnessing, sharing why our faith matters to us and why we think it's beautiful that others should embrace it. And he felt bad for anyone who didn't think that of their tradition. And so the coexist bumper stickers only go so far. Coexist, yes, not hate one another, care for one another. I'm all for that. But as he said, if you start down the trail, go all the way to the end of the trail. Don't just keep doing the smorgasbord of, I want a little of this and a little of that, a little of this. That's American consumerism. That's not Zen Buddhism. That's not Orthodox tradition. That's not Hindu tradition. That's not Islam. Go for broke. And I respect him for that. And he he said when people would say, oh, Paul and you are saying the same thing, he'd say, no, we're not. We're not ultimately saying the same thing. You might think I was a little off in my views. But he said, no, we're saying things differently. We see things differently. And our views are different. And I respected him for cherishing what I take to be strong differences. And, and he had strong differences for me. And that, in part, helped us have a better friendship. Good fences make for good neighbors. Know our differences. But let's still go and have fellowship on the front porch. And so we're doing discussions with Latter-day Saints now. As I've been jealous, there's been a lot of history of tenseness and animosity, but how to have trust and build rapport. I've tried to have that at one point or another with Jehovah's Witnesses. I'd always welcome that. I've had a lot of it with Latter-day Saints in the midst of strong differences. We've done a lot of forums with them, and I look forward to continuing that. There's so much good <laughs> in what you just said. It's hard to pick one. And at my age, I forgot everything I said as soon as I said it. <laughs> it's hard to pick one thing to go with from that. I guess it, what it kind of makes me wonder, because I feel like it's two two separate things of being able to have the interfaith, multi-faith discussion. I like how you, I really, one of my favorite things you talked about is like how you should still go with what you believe. Like you should totally believe it and it should be priceless to you. I'm curious on the two sides of two of the main benefits is how really the multi-faith culture helps in relationships with other people, but also how it helps us with our own faith. Because to me, it seems like we're living in a bigger world when we are able to have those conversations. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I like to ask questions. I, I ask my students in the world religions class to ask questions of the adherents, the leaders of other faith traditions, open-ended questions, not like corner them questions, but open-ended questions like, what is the most precious dimension of your faith that really speaks to you? Because they want to speak about what they love. And I want to hear why they love it. Not just what they love, but why. I love the why question. Yes, no questions. We usually use that yes, no questions to corner people. I've learned the hard way as my kids grow up to stop asking them yes, no question. Like, did you brush your teeth? Because they know what dad wants to hear is yes. And if dad doesn't get a yes, dad's not going to stop, right? So I've learned to ask for open-ended questions. Now, that's true with my kids. I think it's true with anyone. No one wants to be cornered. I think that's objectifying people. And I think to ask them open-ended questions where you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, life's short. I want to live it to the full. And so I want to be inquisitive. I want to grow in that. So I think that by wanting to learn from them what matters to them, why that matters, what gives them a sense of wonder, we need more of that in our society. And so when I find that there are people where their faith really matters to them, as I hear you asking, Ashton, it's like, how does that strengthen me? Hopefully I'm asking myself, well, is my faith mattering that much to me? I mean, again, it's a it's a good mirror. It's a I'm not asking it just for the mirror point, but it's like again back to the holy envy. Man, that impacts me. Am I as passionate about my own faith as as they are? I mean, when Muslims have a zeal, I mean, to pray five times a day. I mean, it's like in the, you know, those who do it, it's like whoa, that says something to me. I mean, I don't have to agree with everyone on what they. I mean, there are major differences between Islam and Christian faith, and we shouldn't minimize them. I think sometimes we minimize them 
And that's going to lead to harm in our society because times get tough. And if we deny the differences, we're not prepared to moderate and mediate those differences when the tensions are on. So I want to understand my Muslim friends and what is it that they're passionate about and and to think through, wow, they're really passionate. Am I that passionate? As I said a few minutes ago, or there might be some aspect of their thought forms, not just their practices, their beliefs about how they hold God in such high regard. You know, may I not treat God in in some kind of flippant manner, you know, so on and so forth. I I could go from point to point of various practitioners, friends of mine from other faith traditions. Um, and it really is, it's life given to me to have these friendships. They're, they're my friends and, and I care about them. Yeah. And I feel like kind of maybe an added point to that is I've met a lot of followers of all faiths. I'd say like, at least from my friend group, especially Christians and Latter-day Saints, that there often seems to be like a fear of engaging with other faith followers or faith traditions, or even like reading up on yeah. what another religion believes For you, I don't know if you had ever gone through that or experienced that, but what would be kind of your tips of how can, you know, how can people engage in more of this multi-faith dialogue? Were there opportunities to do that? And like, what would kind of be the first steps to even get to that point? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt's work, the social psychologist who's an atheist and evolutionary biologist in terms of what shapes his social psychology. E.O. Wilson, the social biologist at Harvard, is instrumental in this thought. And he talks about the moral intuitions. Maybe we've talked about this in another context, but he talks about the moral intuitions that conservatives have and the moral intuitions that liberals have. And there are like six predominant moral intuitions like purity, authority, loyalty, liberty, equity, and fairness. I think those are the six. Liberals score higher on equity and fairness. So you think about immigration reform, you know, we should be more open and accepting because we need to be fair and equitable. And so if you're talking about Christians, liberal Christians are going to be more, in Heights terms, to use his categories, more about equity and fairness. Conservatives, loyalty, authority, purity. And you see that playing out. You know, it's like, well, we need to make sure we have border security. Uh, we need to make sure that we are prizing our own American identity, so on and so forth. And height being a true liberal, says that there's merits to both. And and it's all part of, for him, our evolutionary biology, how we're wired biologically, and how we evolved and with tribal formation and so on and so forth. So if I'm working with conservatives, and you know I'm in the evangelical community, and if I'm trying to help and teach evangelicals, because that's part of what I'm assigned to do as a seminary and university prop, is help prepare Christian leaders for more effective ministry in a multi-faith society. We live in a pluralistic society. We Christians need to learn to share the table (laughs) and learn to share the public square with others and not try and dictate that religious liberty means our liberty, not others' liberties. Uh, It should mean mean everyone's. But if I'm wanting to help my students grow in that and they're wired more in terms of loyalty and authority and purity, the last thing they want to hear is like, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. I mean, that's just not going to register with their moral intuitions. Well, for one, it wouldn't register with mine either. Because I do believe that what we believe matters. And so when I'm trying to help people work with those fears, to your point, and I've had a lot of people say they don't want to engage people with their faith tradition because they're afraid that that would be compromise. They would lose their purity back to those moral intuitions of purity, loyalty. We're wired that way, especially conservatives. If I want to win conservatives, Height would say to me, he has said to us, make sure you're engaging the moral intuitions of your particular in-group, if you will. 
And so one of the things, and I don't do it as, you know, a facade, I really mean it. I try and help evangelicity. If you really want to help evangelical Christians be better evangelicals, don't keep them from engaging people of other faith traditions. Be a good mentor. And I don't want to say immunize in the way we often think of it or inoculate. But I think if you really want to secure someone in a faith tradition, the worst thing you can do is demean another faith tradition, mock another faith tradition, show no respect for that other faith tradition. Because anytime someone who's been in your care spiritually then meets someone who's a profound Muslim or Latter-day Saint or Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness or Buddhist, whatever, they're going to say, well, my prof was wrong or my pastor was wrong. If they were wrong on this, they must have been wrong on something else. That's the worst thing you can do to help someone stay a Christian. Mocking another faith tradition shows how weak you really are in your own faith tradition that you have to mock someone. Show respect because they're worthy of respect. They're creating the image of God and have inherent dignity. And why should we be surprised if there are points of light that you see there that reflect even the light of Christ? And so I have to help. And it's not help like I'm helping them. I don't mean it that way, but I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. I'm trying to instruct and provide those contours. So it's a matter of showing respect to their concerns as my students or a local church community that's concerned about this to try and help them say, see that by understanding another group, by engaging another group thoughtfully and graciously will actually probably help you become stronger in your own faith tradition. And those you mentor will be stronger for it themselves. You know, regardless of where the two of you are, um, Ashton and Allison, in relationship to what I think or where I am in relationship to what you think, I mean, I would assume that what you said, Allison, before about what you saw in Connecting Christ, that I, I wanted them to share their perspectives, even where they were critiquing mine. I don't think that did a disservice to my Christian, you know, how I see the Christian faith. I think it showed, you know, regardless of what you think of me, it's the matter of that pedagogically was a positive thing to do to help even people within my own Christian tradition engage other faith communities well. So I think we should understand our tradition well. I've heard liberal professors say the weakness of their tradition is that their own students don't even know what they themselves really believe about Christology. The weakness of my tradition so often is we don't know enough about what the other camp or tradition thinks. And I don't think it's a matter of just knowing what we believe so we can deal with what some I've heard say called counterfeit. That's strong language. That's really problematic language to me. The counterfeit dollar, learn the real McCoy to understand the, that language of counterfeit is problematic in a variety of ways. So I don't like that language. And I think we should understand these other traditions for what they value, their truth claims, the merits to show an affirmation and have that holy envy. And hopefully that we ourselves are growing in our own faith tradition all the more as we develop that holy envy to say, wow, does my faith have that? Does my faith have something that's worth dying for, worth living for? Because if there's something not worth dying for, it's not worth living for either. And I've, I've been amazed when I see people of other faith traditions really cherish what they believe. I hope I do the same. Again, so many good things. <laughs> it's, uh, I think what I, I, I agree with the, the counterfeit thing. I think that hit me really hard because I know growing up Joe's Witness, I heard that countless times. I'm like, well, you just got to, don't learn these other religions. You just got to learn about the true religion because then you can just... The irony is, the irony is my tradition was saying the same thing about you as you were saying it about us. Exactly. And, I, and I, we're not saying the same thing. We have some fundamentally different views. No question about it. No mincing words over it. But let's show respect and appreciation. I, I told some Jehovah's Witnesses in Japan, I mean, what they suffered under the Tojo system during World War II was insane. And I respect them for what they were willing to go through in their fight against nationalism. Man, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. I mean, I just, I was, and I, I was saying that to them. I mean, what makes you tick? So anyway, I'm just, I wasn't thinking counterfeit dollar bills. 
Oh, I have I, some in my pocket if you'd like some. You want to do an exchange? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I learned from it. Because that, it's just, we all have, each person's brain in reality has a different kind of currency. I feel like that. Yeah. You can't compare yours to another's. I'm curious about how, and again, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up with the things you're saying too, because they are so great. Um, with learning of other people's faith, I, I'm curious how you think expanding our own reality Man, what's the right way to ask the question? How would how would you describe the benefits of the power of empathy? I guess wow. let's ask that. <laughs> power of empathy. Wow. I just got done talking about that in my ethics course uh, with Jonathan Edwards, um, the great Puritan progenitor of evangelism, who's seen as maybe the greatest, well, he is understood as the greatest philosopher and theologian in American history, I think, in the nature of true virtue, a philosophical text he wrote, where he talks about benevolence and and what we would call empathy, having the regard for the other's well-being. Martin Luther King Jr. emphasized a great deal empathy. Abraham Lincoln, as the biographer Goodwin says in her book, Team of Rivals, which was the basis for the movie, supposedly Lincoln, talks about Lincoln, Lincoln had this incredible ability for empathy, which is more than compassion. It's really more than sympathy. It's really entering into the other person's life and sharing in it where you, you have mutual regard and care. And it's, and it's beyond just like, I feel sorry for you. No, it's like you are identifying. And I don't think I can ever get in someone else's skin completely, but I can be an ally. I can share life with that person. My wife and I, I think we do that. We, we feel one another's pain. We feel one another's joys where her joy becomes my joy. My pain becomes her pain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so empathy is so needed in our, our day and, and especially now, right? With all the dehumanization going on, where we treat people as mere things, not as persons, uh, we see this in left and right discussions, political discussions, where we minimize people based on their politics. Politics matter, policies matter, no question. I don't want to minimize that, but I still, even for people I vitally disagree with, I need to see that they are more than that. It's not that they are less than that; they are more than that. Those positions matter, but they're still there's still so much more. You like noodle salad? I like noodle salad. Wow, you have humanity. I have humanity. Um, those things are not mumbo jumbo to me. I look for that. I look for that because it's so easy for us not to see height. Again, a TED talk in 2016, right after the presidential election said, you heard it from both the right and the left, disgusting, deplorable, holiness or unholiness language. And he said, we need to cultivate empathy. He said that we need to cultivate empathy. The loss of the greatest generation with World War II, he said, where people would compromise for the greater good, that's gone. That generation, my mom and dad's generation is is basically gone. And so it's my generation, the boomers and the like, where it's like, what's in it for me? Post-World War II, happiness, Consumerville, Mad Men, Madison Avenue, and then social media, how we just so easily reduce someone with a tweet. And then lastly, Height said the whole matter of our partisan politics, where you're punished if you don't fight vote party line. It's very hard to find a John McCain anymore. This started in the mid-90s and it's only gotten worse. You're punished if you don't vote party line. Your conscience or your constituency matters very little. Uh, it's the party line. And I think both sides have really trumped that, no pun intended. Empathy is huge. Yeah. It's not warm fuzzies. It's a real deep embodiment like Atticus Finch. If you really want to understand someone, you have to step inside their shoes and see life as they see it. Now that's hard to do, but I can still be an ally. Yeah, and I feel like you brought up a good point. I mean, you you talked about degrading someone through a tweet, but I also feel like one of the big dividers of social media is it's allowed us to create like surface level empathy. 
where we post an empathetic photo or caption or whatever. But I think for what you're, what you're talking about of like true deep empathy, it has to go beyond that. Right. Cause social media like lends itself only so far when it comes to building relationships. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, and zoom has its role too. I mean, like zoom can play a role, but it's never going to be as, I mean, you know, the connection you can have in a room together, like the two of you have is going to be far better than what you could have over zoom. And of course there's a place for it now with COVID and just, miles, distance, logistics. But, you know, so often immediacy, and I've written about this elsewhere, but immediacy is easily veiled. It, 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 it gives this assumption of intimacy. If I can get to Waikiki quickly on a plane, therefore, I think I have, I understand the Hawaiian culture. And if I'm there for a tour, I think I understand Hawaii, just though I've been a tourist in international, the international market, but I really haven't lived amongst the people. So I really can't say I understand Hawaii, but we can get there quickly. We can engage people quickly on Facebook or Twitter or some other means, but often it's, it's not intimacy, it's just immediacy. And so I think we have a long way to go. And so that's why sharing life with people of different faith traditions and getting to know them, not just as idea and not just as practices, but as people who are deeply embedded in those practices and it matters to them, is hugely important in our pluralistic society. Um, we need to learn to get along, and that doesn't mean just to get by, but to go forward. Again, thank you. That's <laughs> that's great. Um, we know that you we know that you do have to be somewhere soon, so we just wanted to have one last question of uh, if you could leave listeners with one. Uh, thing to walk away with, one thing to take with them from this episode, what would you want to tell them? Boy, that's going to take a whole other episode. Well, the first thing, I'll just go with what first came to my mind, and it's, and it's based on what my friend, the Zen Buddhist priest, said, and that is, he really feels bad for someone who doesn't see what they themselves adhere to as tradition when they don't see it as most important, most vital, the best. He says, why would you hold to something you don't think is the best? So he encourages people to cherish their tradition. And he also said, as we said in our book, Evangelical Zen, the trailhead, don't just stay at the trailhead, follow your tradition all the way to the end of the trail. Um, that's what I'd want to leave with viewers, with listeners, is kind of a Nietzschean point, Jim Morrison point, break on through to the other side. So that's that's how I'd want to end it. I really enjoyed as I've enjoyed, I enjoyed the last time we interacted too. And, and before that, when I talked to Allison, and then getting to know both of you, Allison and Ashton, I just really cherish just how you're wired. It's good to have these new friends. I don't have any friends. You're my only friends. And uh, so I, no, but seriously, I'm, I'm thankful for your friendship. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the What the Faith podcast. Music brought to you by Justin Kay. And as always, if you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review for the podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.